So today we are going to be talking about agricultural things. How do you deal with plants that are in your garden that are not supposed to be there? None of you guys have that problem, right? It's only a problem at my house. I, we have this interesting, really pretty vine that has grown up. In fact, it grows up in the back of our house, and it's supposed to go up this little trellis thing and make flowers and look pretty. So we stuck the trellis thing right there in the midst so it would go up. And do you think it went up there? No. It went up all the other things and not that thing that it's supposed to go up. And then it did the most peculiar thing. It jumped. And it didn't just jump a few plants over. It jumped somehow over our house. And now that very same plant is growing up in the front yard among all the plants that which are not supposed to be there. It's not supposed to grow. And so I've tried to pull it and yank it. And when I ripped it out, it ripped out other things that are around it. And I don't know if you guys have ever noticed that doing some weeding like that is really painful, not only on your hands, but for the plants that are already supposed to be there. There's just collateral damage all over the place. But I bring that up because today we're looking at a passage in uh, Jesus' final discourse in his last will and testament, if you will, where he talks to his disciples about his vineyard. And so we're going to be talking about the vine life or life in the vine. So if you have your Bibles and want to open to John 15, we are going to have a lot of slides, so you'll be able to follow along there, hopefully. And... Um, Obviously, there are some, some blanks in your outline that you can look at. But as we go through this, let me just kind of give you the outline ahead of time so we can have a little bit of a framework for us to think about. You see, we're going to begin by considering the fact that Jesus is the true vine and, and, and hopefully what all of that entails. And then we're going to consider what, what life in the vine requires. You see, it has two basic requirements that we see in this passage. It has pruning you know, the trimming back to make it stronger and connection, the remaining. But it also, we're going to see thirdly that there are some results of life in the vine. Fruit, love, and answered prayer. So let's begin where Jesus and John, the, uh, the author of this book, begin um, where we consider the fact that Jesus is the true vine. And if you'll notice, Brian didn't read from the book of John. And I wanted, him, I wanted us to hear the word of the Lord from, from the other testament so that we can hear how this all kind of pairs, works together. But in John chapter 15, verse 1, after inviting his disciples to rise and depart, Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. A little bit later on, Jesus makes it more personal, and he, he, he tells his disciples that he is the vine and his disciples are the branches. But what does it mean here that Jesus is the true vine? Why does he add that descriptor in front of that? You see, one of the things we find in, ancient, in the ancient world is that the vine vineyards were common metaphors for all sorts of things. And we can see it around us living here in the agricultural reserve. We can, we can see how God might use those things. But people used vineyards and the vines, scholars, teachers, writers would, would use that to help people understand what life was like. And it was... It was um, if you will, it was a fertile analogy for them because in the Mediterranean region, 
vineyards and vines. They grow everywhere. It's fertile soil for that. But as we read earlier, the vine and vineyard language was a common analogy for the people of Israel. God used that to refer to his people. And Carson notes, Don Carson notes in his commentary that when Israel was referred to as a vine, it was often referred to as a vine that did not produce the fruit that God intended. So here Jesus calls himself the true vine. And some commentators speculate that, dis, that Jesus and the disciples had truly left the upper room and that they had begun to make their way to the Mount of Olives, which is ultimately where Jesus would, be, would pray and sweat drops of blood, as we see in other places, and where he would be betrayed, where he would be arrested across. He has to go outside of the city. But here they're in the city. And so some, some commentators speculate that they, as they're making their way out of town, they're passing by the temple. And in, all over the temple, you would see imagery of, vin, of vines intended to, be, intended to help the people of Israel understand that they are to be the fruitful vine that God had planted. So I almost wonder if Jesus walks by there and he says, hey, you know, I'm the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. And it seems like Jesus is... Um, revealing here something that may have been a bit earth-shattering to his disciples. You th see, think about this. Their whole lives, they grew up hearing these Old Testament scriptures like what we read today. They heard that. We are the vine planted. Judah is the precious planting of the Lord. And yet now Jesus is saying, I am the true vine. It's almost as though Jesus is replacing the geographically oriented Israel. The promise, the fruit, the blessing is now no longer tied to a place somewhere between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River, but now it was tied to a person, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus communicates that he is the true vine and then begins to discuss what, what life in the vine requires. Now, I have not met, spent a whole lot of time around vineyards and orchards, but I know that I've spent an insufficient amount of time around the plant beds that surround my house because there are way too many weeds. And the plants that are growing are misshapen and they're blossoming at odd places. We have a tomato plant we planted over a year ago. It should have died. It's still producing. I've done nothing to it. Clearly, God is in control. But there's, there are some things that planting requires that, fertilize, that, that caring for plants needs, and that is pruning. And Jesus tells us in John 15, 1 to 2, he says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. A couple of years ago, I reached out to one of the local vineyard owners and, and asked them about vine care, just kind of in order to understand this a little bit more. And he said that, you know, when, when branches grow, the longer they get, the weaker the fruit is out at the end. You got to trim it back so, so all the nutrients from the vine grow out to the branch and they, the fruit becomes all that it is supposed to be. And so the vine dresser has to trim the ends in order that, the, that it may bear good fruit. 
And so God, like a vine dresser, works in similar ways. He prunes his people in order to allow us to grow and produce the fruit that he desires. But how does he do that? It seems like God allows pain. He allows disappointment. He allows struggles in our lives individually and in us corporately to trim back the edges that are fruitless so that the rest might become fruitful. Bruce Milne in his commentary notes that in his pruning, the father also uses hard circumstances and trials. As it says in Hebrews, none of these appear pleasant at the time, but painful and later on produce a harvest. So have, I need to ask us a question. Have we taken the time in our pain to ask what God might be communicating to us? What way of thinking, what habit, what attitude or sin is he trimming so that he can bear more fruit through us? Or are we just complaining? Or are we just griping? But Jesus makes something a bit more personal to his disciples. In verse 3, he says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. You see, because Jesus is the true vine, the words that he has spoken has resulted in belief and in a new life among his followers. The fruitless performance-based religion has been trimmed off and new life in Christ is the fruit that they are beginning to bear. And I think Jesus uses something interesting there. He uses the word prunes. um, When he says that the father prunes or cuts back the vine, he uses the same word as he uses when he, he told the disciples that they are already clean. That is the same Greek word, just a little bit different variations on that. And when we think about the larger faith community, it seems like Jesus is pointing out that because the disciples believe that he is the Messiah, they are already clean. They are already pruned on account of their faith in him. Essentially, in order for us to come to faith, God has to cut away all of our preconceived ideas. He has to cut away all of those things in us that would make us want to live a self-righteous, self-made life. But for others who do not yet believe or refuse to believe, they sit as uncleaned and risk being cut off. And I think Judas Iscariot may have been in Jesus' mind as he's talking about this. The one of the, 11, one of the 12 disciples who had left them already and had gone to betray Jesus. But it could be that other unbelieving Jews were in that condition too, were at the risk of being cut off and discarded. But I wonder if that would include people who look like they're part of the vine but really have no spiritual connection. As Danielle and I were talking about this yesterday, she, she talked about all the different vines that there are. Well, not all of them, but there's so many different vines. There's, you know, poison ivy. We all love having that around our house, right? And it grows in the same places that the good, healthy vines, the good, healthy plants do. But I wonder how many of us fall into that trap of thinking, just because I'm close enough means I'm there. Just because I show up, just because I volunteer, just because, well, God is a God of love, so he's going to universally accept everybody. The challenge is, as Jesus says, the branches that don't bear fruit are cut off, gathered up, and thrown into the fire. 
So the question is, are you an intended part of the vine or a weed that is only benefiting from the soil and not bearing true spiritual fruit? Or are you already clean because you've responded to God's call for salvation? Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the one who can save you from your sin? But in addition to pruning, which is the first requirement of life in the vine, the second thing that Jesus helps us see here is that life in the vine requires connection. We see this in verses 4 and 5. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So Jesus seems to remove the broader religious community to the more individual application of this He says, if if we are the branches, then we are to remain connected to the vine. We can't bear fruit unless we remain close to him. And it almost goes without saying that for a branch to grow, it has to be connected. But how does this happen? How did it happen for his disciples? After all, see, think about this. This is the night before Jesus would go to the cross. And so he's telling his disciples, remain in me. So how is this going to happen? How does it happen for us? Jesus has been in heaven now for nearly 2,000 years. He's been, as we saw a couple weeks ago, preparing a place for us. I think for the disciples, this involved continuing in what he taught them, not turning back to their old way of thinking, not turning back to that sacrificial system, not turning back to that conventional way, that that earthly, sin-bound way of thinking. In fact, some of John's early audience, and when he wrote this, it seemed like there were a lot of people who were trying to go back to what they knew in the old sacrificial system. And he's telling them, no, remain in me in the grace you have received. But I think, you know, Jesus has provided an aid. Jesus, he told his disciples, hey, I'm going to send a comforter. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And look at what it says. If you flip back a chapter in, in chapter 14, we saw this last week. But he said, the Holy Spirit would bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Which means we need to pay attention to what the Holy Spirit is prompting. That little tug on our hearts. That little time when the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, don't do that. Or do this. How does it apply to us? I think when, when we remain connected to the vine of Jesus, not by, and not by returning to our old ways or a fallen way of thinking, we, uh, and, and we remain connected by not returning to our old ways of solving life's problems. But remaining, abiding, connecting to Jesus involves spending time with him, spending time in his word. Here are a couple other passages throughout the New Testament that help us understand this a bit more. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all, hymn, all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We need to let his word so saturate our lives that it oozes out in conversations with one another. 
On Wednesday nights, we've been working our way through Psalm 119, which is a, a series of meditations on the Word of God. And, and just recently, in recent weeks, we've studied this. In Psalm 119, 16, it says, I delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. And as a child, you probably heard verse 11. You probably memorized that I have stored up your word in my heart. Or as I, as I learned it as a kid, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The psalmist recognizes that throughout this psalm, satisfaction in knowledge of and life according to the word of God is needed to withstand sinfulness from within and withstand the attacks from without. So how are you doing in reading and meditating, memorizing and applying the word of God? Are you consistent in allowing the word to penetrate your thinking and your acting? Are you truly connected to Jesus? This, one of the things that Ermal and I are doing is reading through a, a, a book called The Practical Pastor, and it has a lot of other little books that go with it. And this week, in the chapter that I was reading, the authors really challenged pastors to be thinking about this. He wasn't talking about the same passage per se, but so often as pastors, it's easy for us, and I think professors run into this too, even Sunday school teachers, it's easy for us to look at the Word of God as being our textbook, to look at it and say, well, how, how many points can I get out of this? What's the appropriate number? How, how can I twist this and make it palatable so we can understand it? And people think, oh, wow, that was so cool the way that Joel did that. Because, of course, it's got to be all about me, right? But I think the challenge is that we, I run into this, that I fail to see the word of God as being for me. I see it as something I'm supposed to teach. Yeah, and that's right and good. But have I let it teach me first? So I want to ask you and encourage you, please pray for me in that, that I would slow down, that I would read and, and digest the word of God, that it would so ooze out, not so that I can teach or preach, but so that I can live the righteous life that God has called us all to. The writer of Hebrews states that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So let us remain or abide in Jesus daily by reading, by considering, by memorizing, and then by living out his word. Which brings us to the next point. Life in the vine not only requires pruning and connection, but life in the vine results in several things. And the first thing I think it does is it results in fruit. And it's not just temporary fruit. This is fruit that remains, fruit that is lasting. John 15, 8 says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now, bearing fruit is not a prerequisite. It's a result. It doesn't, bearing fruit doesn't come before we can be considered a disciple. Bearing fruit is afterwards. It's after we spend time in the word, after we spend time being immersed in what Jesus is talking to us about, that we begin to show what life in the vine produces. But then the question is, what is this fruit? 
If we were to think about vine and branches, the fruit that is produced is more of the same. To some degree, the fruit in our lives should be new believers. After all, as we've seen in Matthew 28, 19 to 20, we're called to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We've spent much time in the last month thinking and praying for the ones whom God might call to be his disciples, those who are in our little circles of influence. And while we've finished that 30 days of praying for our one, we're not finished. We need to keep praying. We need to keep witnessing. We need to keep reaching and keep seeking to bear fruit. But I want to encourage us too, for, for those of you who are parents, we get to bear fruit in the lives of our kids, seeking to establish them in the word of the Lord, seeking, uh, this week I was, or a couple weeks ago, I was so encouraged. I got an email from somebody because in, in like the midweek email and in, in the little dear family letter, I, I, most of the time I give a little teaser about what's happening Sunday, right? Which is good and right, and I, I guess I should. Well, for whatever reason, one week I didn't include the passage that we were going to be looking at. And so this mom reached out to me and she said, hey, we use that for our family devotions, what are you studying? What are we looking at this week? And so I said, oops, sorry, thank you, and here's the passage. And I was so encouraged by that because it, it helped me realize that they are seeking to make disciples to bear fruit in their children the way that all of us are called to bear fruit. But I don't think this fruit is just limited to making disciples. It, I think it involves every aspect of our lives, how we being able to emulate and appropriately represent Jesus. Bruce Milne again writes, fruit bearing which glorifies the Father and is the product of pruning and remaining is finally inclusive of all the works, graces, and ministries of the living Lord in his people. So the question is, do we represent those, Jesus well to those around us? Do we represent Jesus well when we are all alone by ourselves? But in addition to resulting in fruit, the vine life results in love. We've seen this several times in the last few weeks, and we'll see it again in coming weeks because this is a big theme for John. But in John 15, 9 to 13, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide or remain in my love. And if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend. You see, this is not an idyllic or an emotionally driven love. It's not that warm, fuzzy feeling that we get from just being around each other. This love is a response to God's love for us. This love is unconditional. It does not expect love in return or contain prerequisites. It simply loves. This love is obedient. Even when obedience is difficult, when it would be so much easier to do things differently, Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another. 
Love is mutual. It's, it's a one-anotherness. It's togetherness. It's us. This love is sacrificial. Jesus modeled this most clearly by going to the cross. And it may require us to lay down our lives for one another. But love may simply require us to give up time or energy or comfort. But love will require a sacrifice. In fact, Jesus, the, John writes in 1 John 3.16, he says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. One of the comments that I often state in weddings is um, when I'm talking to husbands and wives, I'm, I'm getting to the place in, in, in Ephesians 5.25 where husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church. So many times I'll ask them, I'll, I'll, I'll challenge especially husbands to say, well, what does love require of me? What does love require of me as I try to love Danielle this way? What does love require? But in, here in the church, what does love require of me? I think as Jesus' disciples, we can and should wrestle with that same question. What does love require of me? Is it serving in, in a class differently? Is it opening my home to a fellow brother or sister? Is it welcoming a stranger? Is it sharing a meal? Is it going across the street? Or is it even going around the world? to do something for the kingdom of God. What does love require of me? But in addition to fruit and love, life in the vine results in answered prayer. Now, if you're like me, maybe you're thinking, yes, I've been praying for this. Tell me the key. What is the answer? I want answered prayer. Finally, here's the secret. Are you ready? Get your pencils out. Unfortunately, I don't think it's that easy or simple. Look at what it says in John 15, 7. Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, here it is, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. But Jesus places a condition on this answered prayer, remaining in him, remaining in him and having his words abide in us. Don Carson in his commentary on this said, so, he says this, such words must so lodge in the disciples' minds and hearts that conformity to Christ, obedience to Christ is the most natural or supernatural thing in the world. And then he continues to cast it in terms of prayer. Such a truly obedient believer proves effective in prayer since all he or she asks for conforms to the will of God. So to this end, it seems that prayers are answered because our desires have been so changed by being with Jesus that we want what he wants. Danielle uh, showed me this little video clip. Our, our family tends to pass around these little video clips. Mostly it's Zach and Danielle and Zoe, and I just jump in on them afterwards. But it was really funny. This comedian was there praying, and, and this, this person was, you know, folded hands, eyes closed, said, Dear God, and this voice off screen said, Yes. And, and they're looking around like, What? 
And, and it comes back to, it's sacrilegious, I know. But it's, uh, there's a point to it. So the person says, dear God, and they kind of go back and forth with God like, well, this God says, this isn't a letter. You don't have to talk to me like that. Just ask. Tell me what you want. And so was, finally they got to the, the punchline and they said, dear God, can I have a million dollars? And God immediately answered, no. But, but and the, the video ended. The, and the whole point was that, you know, I, I think in that our desires are not his desires. In John 15, 16, Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Is that the key in Jesus' name? Don't you notice that we often close our prayers with that, in Jesus' name? What does it mean to be in Jesus' name? I was convicted about this this week as I've been thinking through this because I, I close a lot of my prayers in his name, and in your holy name, in Jesus' name. And I'm thinking, is that just something we tack on to the end in hopes that God will say, well, that's in Jesus' name, so I must give it. God, can I have a million dollars, please? In Jesus' name, amen. See, praying in Jesus' name is a result of abiding. Have we spent so much time that we are wanting the things that he wants? It's a result of praying according to his will. But praying in Jesus' name is not just the thing we tack on to prayer at the end. Oh, God answers if it's in Jesus' name, so in Jesus' name, that's going to cover everything. It's not a magic pill that we throw in there, not a magic phrase to get what we want. And I'm trying to make a little bit light of this, but I really want us to understand the seriousness of it because it can be frustrating to pray and 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 pray for the same thing. We want healing. We want someone to get their life together. We want salvation for someone. We want a new job. We want reconciliation. And we pray and we pray. But ultimately, it seems that we need to make sure that as we're abiding in Jesus, as we're spending time with him in his word, that we make time to lean in and begin to ask, God, what are you doing in this? Why are you delaying? What do I need to learn? What do I need to change? How do I need to think differently about this? we'd like to say with the psalmist who said in Psalm 119, 126, it is time for the Lord to act. Okay, God, I've done all this. Your turn. But rather, I wonder if next time we pray, we should ask ourselves, am I really praying in Jesus regarding what I'm asking for? So life in the vine requires pruning and, and connection 
results in fruit and love and even answered prayer. But finally, we need, we need to consider one other thing that has caused many people challenges in this passage, and that is what is the result of life outside the vine? We already read that the Father has a great role to play in John 15, 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So a lot of guys have wrestled with that question. What does it mean for a branch to be in me or in Jesus that then gets taken away? Just think about that question because there's a huge ramification there. And then jump down to verse 6. He says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. So as I read this, I've been wrestling with this question. Does this mean that if I accept Christ as a child but don't stick with it, that I could lose my salvation? Could I be cast into the fire of hell? Does it mean that salvation is not permanent? I thought it was there to last. When I was in seminary, I had to write a position paper on this passage and some of these verses. And the point of the, of the assignment was to determine what the real-life impact of Jesus' extended metaphor is here. And I wrestle with this because it certainly seems like eternal life was contingent on me being able to remain in Jesus. The professor I had pointed out that the word in verse 2, which is translated takes away, could also be translated as lifted up. And his whole point was, the branch that isn't bearing fruit is being propped up so that it will bear fruit. That's one way to look at it. God is caring for the one who is not bearing fruit. But not all commentators agree with that perspective. And some suggest that the fruitless branches are the people of Israel who, who, who refused to believe that Jesus was their Messiah. Their whole faith system pointed to the one who would come, and now that he has arrived, they don't believe, and so they're discarded. They're cast away. But in verse 6, where it clearly talks about the non-abiding branches being thrown into, into the fire, what does that mean? See, there is no ambiguity there. Is abiding a condition of eternal life? And if so, just how much abiding is required? But based on what we read elsewhere in Scripture, our salvation is not conditional on us, and it's a good thing because I would fail. We see in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians 4, or 2, 4 through 9 says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even, as, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. And then if you were to read this afternoon, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, you would see a beautiful picture of salvation being entirely dependent upon Jesus. Notice as you read through that, all of the in hymns, but look at verses 13 and 14. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So based on the broader understanding of Scripture, broader context of of this passage that we're looking at, we have to come to the conclusion that salvation, once we've responded to Jesus Christ's offer for salvation, it is eternal. We are his for all eternity. So back to our passage in John, what's up with these non-abiding branches? What happens to them? Are they people who've fallen out of the faith? Are they people who were never there? I suspect that these are branches who are faking it. These are branches who may have been introduced to the gospel, but were never grafted in, as we see in Romans chapter 11. They never repented of their sin. They never received the free gift of salvation that Jesus offers. And so those branches are gathered up, discarded, and thrown into the fire. So friend, I have to ask, is that you? Have you responded to Jesus' call? Or are you pretending? Have you trusted your life to what Jesus did on the cross for you? And if not, then repent, believe, and be baptized. And if you want to understand that more, let me know. I'd be happy to open the word of God with you. Being cast aside in judgment is a reality that everyone who does not respond to Jesus faces. There will be a judgment. Will you be on Jesus' side in that or will you have to to fend for yourself? So let me close with a couple things. Beloved, how is your walk? And I'm not talking about your gait. I'm not talking about your strut. How is your spiritual walk? Are you taking time to abide with Jesus? Are you remaining faithful when the pruning hand of God is heavy on your life? Are you bearing fruit that produces disciples and ultimately, appropriately, represents the true vine, Jesus?